In honor of Veterans Day, we decided to release a rerun of our interview from Episode 6 with distinguished military historian Dr. John McManus. To all of the veterans, thank you for your service. We wouldn't be able to aim for the moon without your sacrifice. Welcome to Aiming for the Moon. I am Taylor Bledsoe. And I'm Maddie Henry. And on this podcast, we're interviewing interesting people from a teenage perspective. That's right. And today, we will be interviewing Dr. John McManus, who is the professor of U.S. military history at the Missouri University of Science and Technology and was their first humanities professor to earn the Curator's Distinguished Professor. Well, here's the interview. All right. Welcome, Dr. McManus. Um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me on, Taylor. No problem. So you are currently the professor of U.S. military history at the Missouri University of Science and Technology. So you are their curator's distinguished professor, and you're obviously one of the leading professors on military history in the nation. I I think that's really awesome because I was really into World War II history, and it was very interesting to read your book, The Dead and Those About to Die. Thanks for reading it. I appreciate it. (laughs) Yes, sir. That was a very um, interesting book. I particularly liked how you did um, first-person sources. Now, Yeah, yeah. To me, that brings history to life, you know? Yes, sir. Speaking of your professorship and everything, um, you were originally, you got your degree in sports journalism. What got mm-hmm. you interested in military history and specifically World War II history? You know, I'd always been interested in World War II history. Uh, I'm like you. When I was a kid, I was reading books about World War II. Um, and, you know, I had a kind of a dual passion. I was interested in World War II and I was interested in sports. And um, when I went to, to college and undergrad, at that point, I was more interested in sports. Uh, and yet, at the, the same time, you know, I was taking any history course that I could, not just military history, of course, but anything about history I just really had a passion for. And so, you know, just over time, I, I started to get more interested in that side of things. Um, and I felt that military history was relatively underappreciated, I guess, in term, you know, in relation to its importance. Uh, because I felt that nobody could ever ask anything more of you or me or anybody else than to put our lives on the line, um, you know, in, in a war. And so I, I always wondered why people do that, uh, particularly Americans, because I'm, you know, primarily an American historian. And um, I wondered, you know, what that's like, um, how that affects people, whether anything good comes out of that, you know, all those kinds of things really, you know, I really wanted to find answers to them. So that's, uh, you know, really the, the number one reason why I went into military history. And then part of what's kept me investigating in all these years is I still maybe hope a little bit that the more we know about military history, uh, the more we know about warfare, that maybe we have a better chance of avoiding it in the future. That's that's really interesting. So you, basically, you love recording history so that history, like a lot of people say, doesn't repeat itself specifically wars. That's always the hope. Exactly. You know, and I'd almost like compare it to, 
uh, disease, you know, how, how physicians study disease and attempt to conquer disease. And uh, so one of the things that worries me, you know, nowadays is, um, especially in the academic world, I don't think there's anywhere near enough military historians as to, to what there should be, because there's kind of a, a sense of, well, we don't really want to study war. That's nasty and terrible, and we don't want to mess with that. And I get that. But I also think it's a bit wrongheaded because it's like saying we don't want to study disease because it's it's mean and nasty and we don't like it. Um, you know, I think you need to know a lot about it. And, and uh, so I commend you for for you know studying it, you know, at this early. And I, I can really relate to it, like I said, because I you know when I was your age, I was reading anything on World War II I could get my hands on. Thanks. Yeah. Um, spe- um, specifically, your books have been very interesting. You've written 13 of them so far that I've counted. And in one year, in fact, you wrote four. So how do you write at such a fast pace? Um, you know, it's it's honestly just a lot of, I won't call it hard work because, you know, I don't know that I view what I do as really work, but it's a lot of hours. Um, you, you just have to be willing to really invest a lot of time to sit down and, and write and, of course, to, to go and do the research and, you know, to just kind of immerse yourself in it. And, you know, one of the good things about an academic job like mine is part of the, jo- the expectation of the job is that you're going to be doing research and, and writing books. And so, you know, I'll have like uh, summers away from teaching that allows me to, to go and do research and gives me a little more time to write. But I, but I also, you know, just a lot of weekends, a lot of nights. Um, you know, it's just, you just kind of have to be dedicated to it in, in that respect and be willing to spend a lot of time with it. Yes, sir. That I'm sure you spent a lot of time writing all of those four books, especially since they're all like pretty thick books. Yes, sir. They weren't just your hundred page sit down, read for an hour books. They're, they're big books. Yep. How, what was your favorite book to write so far? Ah, uh, gosh, that's a good question. Hmm. You know, it, it could be my, my latest series uh, about the Army in the Pacific Asia Theater during World War II, uh, because the like the, the scope is so vast that I was able to really investigate a lot of different aspects of World War II, whether it's race or um, combat or like logistics or just what it's like to be you know, dealing with the New Guinea jungle and disease and that kind of stuff. And it's just, there's a nice variety to it. Um, it's been a, a really huge project that I've been working on for, you know, almost a decade. But it's been just fascinating, you know, that, that I learn as I go. So it really may be my latest book, Fire and Fortitude, and then the one I'm working on now, which is a follow-up volume that covers like 1944 and 1945. Yes, sir. I read that on your bio page, how you were writing both of those huge volumes. And that that's going to bring a lot of a lot of help to to the world, especially to get all that chronicled. Speaking of writing down sources and everything, could you because a lot of our listeners are teenagers, could you just explain to them why it is important to have original sources and instead of secondary <laughs> sources? Yeah, I mean, just think of it as um, like anything that would happen in school. Uh, let's say you hear what, something you think is a fact. You know, somebody in the lunchroom tells you, hey, you know, the principal 
did XYZ, whatever it is. Um, you have to make sure that's true. You know, I mean, when you're just getting something secondarily, like you're hearing it fifth or sixth hand from somebody who's spread a rumor, <laughs> you know, in school or something, that's not solid information. So what you have to do as a historian, just like in life, you say, okay, can I really verify this? Where did this come from? And, and you know, like it's incredible in history how many myths get repeated. And so what happens is that authors, a lot of times, it's usually authors just are like, okay, well, I saw it in someone's book or I read that in some article and so it must be true and I'll just pass that on. And they don't really take the time sometimes to go to the original source material, like uh, an after action report, um, a unit journal, a personal interview with somebody who was there, you know, that kind of firsthand material with what, what historians call a primary source. Uh, so it's really not all that different than real life where you're constantly hearing things and you're wondering, eh, is that true or not? And you're kind of assessing. Sometimes you assess the source too. If you know somebody who, you know, says things that really aren't true a lot of times or tends to have wild opinions or something, you're like, eh, I kind of take that with a grain of salt versus somebody who you trust. And so you kind of see that too in historical sources or too, like, especially like if you're interested in, um, um, like legal shows, like with trials and all that. One of the things you'll notice as lawyers when they're getting witness testimony is they're trying to stick to what the witness can testify to. So like if I'm covering somebody like, like the, the book about uh, Omaha beach, uh, I'm not really going to get, try and get a firsthand account from somebody who was at Utah beach. Cause they don't, they don't know. They weren't there. Even it could be even this person needs to be in the right part of the beach to be able to comment on something I'm trying to describe there. Uh, and so you really have to kind of filter it that way. And I, so I really encourage everybody not just to take at face value, especially nowadays with so much social media and stuff that's just constantly flying at you, not just to take at face value what you hear. To step back a little bit and to say, okay, does it make sense? Is that true or not? How do I really assess that? And that'll, that'll really help you be a, a strong, independent thinker. And people were, will... I think respect you more and be able to trust more what you say because you verified things and, and it makes sense what you say. So basically check your sources if you're a historian. Heck yeah. Yeah. And, and anything, you know, if you're a journalist, if you're, if you're anything, if you just, if you're an everyday person um, and someone's trying to tell you something that they say happened or that you, they think you need to do or something, check the source and say, well, you know, <laughs> is this real or not? <laughs> yes, sir. So do you ever come across this when you're interviewing people, like with um, the primary and secondary sources, like that maybe there was a rumor set within the troop or something? Do you ever come across that where you have to deal with the problem of secondary and primary sources? Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great question because it happens, especially in a military setting so much, because especially like a an average soldier only can – can see what he or she has in, in front of them, you know? And so what will happen sometimes, and I'll give you an Omaha Beach example, is that soldiers will assume something's true and then just assume that for the rest of their lives or they'll read about the event, you know, decades later. And so that's filtered through that. And, and, and so they'll say like, oh, you know, that landing craft got hit and everybody was killed. So right there, you got to say, well, 
is that true or not? And your tendency when you're talking to somebody who was there is like, well, they must know. I'll take that at face value. But you really have to delve into it. And then when you look in the records, which they kept at the time, casualty records or whatever, you realize, no, you know, three or four people were killed and 20 were wounded and then survived. So that, that person wasn't, it wasn't really lying to you, but was just sort of repeating something they assumed that probably was a rumor, like like you said. And so it's a classic example of how you kind of have to, you know, filter it, filter a little bit. That's yeah, that that sounds really interesting and also sounds um, very fun to talk a lot to a lot of these people and get to make sure that your facts are straight when you're writing about them. So um, because our podcast is geared more towards teenagers, mm -hmm. I would I really want to know what were you like specifically as a teenager? I'd hate to even tell you, nowhere near as smart or mature as you. Um, I was, I was, you know, I was really into sports. Um, that was my thing as a kid. Um, I always loved reading. And I, I believe very strongly that, you know, if you can read really well, if you have good reading skills, you're going to be in a position to succeed in a lot of different kinds of pursuits, not necessarily just history or whatever, you know. It just it's really is going to help you a lot. Um, so I was – you know, I, I think I was not particularly mature. Um, <laughs> I, I don't, I mean, I was not, I, I'm not going to try and claim I was any kind of really good student. I, I was fine, you know, but I was not anybody who stood out, but there were, there were some subjects and some things that I particularly liked, had a passion for, and I tended to put more effort into that. And history was an example. I always loved history. And so any history class I had, I just enjoyed it. Um, you know, so yeah, it's almost embarrassing for me <laughs> to tell you because I, I, uh, <laughs> I, I was not a mature teenager at all, but I was not like a, a bad kid in trouble or anything like that either, you know, but. I mean, well, you obviously got here, so you did a lot of stuff, right? <laughs> <laughs> I eventually grew up a little bit, you know, and I think part of it was just finding my passion of what I wanted to do and being willing to be dedicated to that. And that, that was one of the things like the, the questions you had sent, you wondered about my advice for whatever it's worth. You know, I, I believe very strongly that you should follow your passion of what you want to do because it's your life. Um, and don't let other people dictate what your life is going to be. And that, 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 um, that applies to a lot of different scenarios. It can apply to social scenarios like, uh, you know, with peer pressure, um, you can't let other people decide for you that, that you're going to be involved in, in, in drugs or, or I don't know, just whatever behavior that you're not comfortable with. It's up to you and, and they're not going to live your life, you know? So if someone is, is doing something like that, that isn't really in your best interest that you want to do, you don't need them is, is how I view it. It's, and maybe it's a little easy for me to say, cause I was not a big peer pressure person, but I do believe that very strongly. Um, that that's important, but it could be like on the, on the parental side too, because parents want to make sure that you're going to be, you're going to have a job, you're going to have a good future and all that. And so sometimes they're going to pressure you into doing something they think is economically advantageous, but you may not care about it. And I, so I, I don't think, I think it's great to be a lawyer or a doctor or whatever, but um, if it's just to satisfy somebody else, that's not the right reason to do it. You should follow what interests you and your passion and uh, be willing to commit to it maybe is advice I would give you. And it can be hard to figure that as a teenager too, you know, where you fit, what your identity is, who you are, you know, and I, I would say just give yourself a break, you know, <laughs> and just, just get to know yourself and then and follow 
your own passion. Yes, sir. So basically, don't give in to the peer pressure. Absolutely. If it's if it's negative peer pressure um, that's taking you away from who you need to be and what you know, respect yourself. It, that you don't need people like that. If it's positive peer pressure of people who are always encouraging you to be your best self, who are there to support you, uh, who expect good things out of you, um, you know, then I think that's great, you know, but it, it can be hard to, to determine who is who in any given day. And we're all trying to, to find our own way, not just as teenagers, but later in life too. So, um, you know, I would just say, don't, don't just follow the herd. It's easy to do. Believe me, I've been there too, you know, but, uh, but you have to, you have to believe in yourself and like yourself. And, um, and I, I think that then when you do that, it's just a lot easier than to resist the, the peer pressure is my, my feeling. Yes, sir. That it, it's great advice. Thanks so much for that. All uh, right. Our final question. And then sadly, we're going to have to say goodbye, but okay. um, what books have had an impact on you and why? Yeah. Um, boy, lots of great books uh, that I'll try, try to narrow it down to a few. Uh, there was a book called the, the face of battle by, by John Keegan um, that, it had a great influence on me because Keegan was doing history the way I thought it should have been done. And in other words, like from the soldier's point of view, what it was really like in combat. And, and, uh, and so I thought that's, that's what I want to do as well. And it showed me that that could be done. Um, the longest day by Cornelius Ryan is an incredible book about D-Day. And there's, it's, they made a movie on it a long time ago, like in the early sixties. And it's, it's, you know, not a great movie by like our expectation of standards today, but it's still, it's pretty interesting. Uh, so I, I would highly recommend that. Um, there was a book called a time for trumpets by Charles McDonald, who actually was in the battle of the bulge. And the book is about the battle of the bulge. So it's neat because he has his own experience that he brings to it, but he's also a, a military historian who's looking at it from a little bit of objectivity years later too. Um, you know, band of brothers, was just, I think, really well done in terms of uh, bringing to life the soldiers who were there. Uh, there's so many, there's so many books that it's it's hard for me to narrow down, as you could imagine. Um, I think anything by Joseph Balkowski is definitely worth reading, especially about D-Day, uh, because again, he's a soldier's historian and he's a good writer. Good writing is so huge for history. Nobody wants to read boring stuff, you know. So. <laughs> So th those were those were very influential books for me and people for me that uh, that I, I still look back now and I'm like wow they're they're incredible. Yes, sir. In fact, I've read that longest day book, or at least I listened oh. to it in audiobook version, and it it was amazing. It was like listening to a movie, basically. It, exactly, and that's why it, it lent itself to the movies to the screen so well. Um, it's just for like, from a historian's point of view, there, there were a lot of different ways they should have done it differently accuracy wise, but uh, that wasn't Ryan's fault. And that, that it was the, the Hollywood screenwriter's fault. And that could be frustrating from a historian's point of view. But yeah. It's, I'm, it's cool that you, you, uh, you're familiar with the book and you've listened to it. It's, it's pretty interesting. It is. Well, thank you so much for coming on our podcast. It's been really awesome to have you on. Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Taylor. And good luck to everybody. Take care. Thanks.
off, that was an amazing interview because I am such a World War II nerd, and he is one of the nation's leading professors in that topic. So when I read his book, The Dead and Those About to Die, which is a great book, and I totally recommend it to anyone, even if you're not really interested in World War II history, because it's all these firsthand accounts of people who are actually at Omaha Beach on D-Day. And it's so well written, and it's like a movie, and I just loved it. So Maddie, what did you think of this interview? Yes, it was definitely interesting and definitely thoroughly enjoyable. But I really thought it was interesting that not only is he just a historian, he's a military historian. Like he was saying, a lot of people wouldn't want to do that because you would uncover so many sad stories and gruesome details. And But he has taken that into account and just completely proven so much and shed so much light on so many amazing people that have fought for our country. I mean, it's incredible. Yes, along with all of his work in military history, obviously, he is, we didn't even get to talk about this during the interview, but he is a well-known guy, and I cannot believe that he agreed to be interviewed. I'm so excited about it. He was in residence at the U.S. Naval Academy as the Leo A. Schifrin Chair of Naval and Military History as a distinguished visiting professor. And that's awesome because if you don't know, the Naval Academy is Ivy League. And is that's basically like he was elected to go and be a professor at Harvard, except with military people there. So it's a huge honor. And his books have been put on the Army's reading list for officers. So at least one of his books called The Grunts. And it's he's just a well-known guy. And I cannot believe that he agreed to an interview So thank you so much, Dr. McManus, if you're listening. I hope you are. Yes, and I loved his advice. That was incredible. Just saying, just don't don't give in to peer pressure. It the bad peer pressure at least. Like if people are trying to like good peer pressure, do that. (laughs) Don't do the bad peer pressure. Yes, and he also said basically follow your passion and dream big and do it. Don't give in to the peer pressure, like Maddie said. Because they're not the ones who are going to be living your life. You are. I just thought that was awesome. Definitely great advice to live by. So before we end this episode, for the Eric Gilmore episode that we did, I read Through the Gates of Splendor. And that was an amazing book. I would totally recommend it to anyone. It was basically... so. This is actually a very well-known story, and if you want to read the book, it's awesome. But I would um, stop right here if you want to not have the book spoiled, which if you don't know the story, a lot of people do know the story, so you might already have it spoiled, but it's written about this account of the story that's very well-known about some missionaries. So it's written by Elizabeth Elliot, and she was the, hu- the wife excuse me, of Jim Elliot, who Jim Elliot and a few of his missionary friends all went to this tribe in South in South America and were missionaries. And they were trying to basically spread the gospel to this missionary place. And then sadly, um, that entire group of missionaries ended up dying. They were all killed by this tribe. So I thought it was a really, really actually interesting book because it was written from basically her experience in their diary journals. And it was very interesting because it talked about their culture, the um, Indian culture there, or the whatever you want to call it, the South American culture there, and how they spoke Spanish. But it was it was just very interesting, I thought. So, yeah, if you want to read it, I will be writing my Taylor's opinion on it. <laughs> 
So that's, let's see how that'll go. That'll be my first Taylor's opinion. And I will be reading one of the books that was recommended today and then on the interview. So I'll, I'll write in Maddie's opinion. Yes, totally. So this is our sixth episode. And before we let you guys go, I can't believe we're at six. We're almost at 10. That's amazing. We got another interview all lined up, so it's all good. So anyway, um, before we leave you, we just want to remind you, go check out our website, aimingforthemoon.com. That is basically where we post our blog stuff. And Maddie and I started a new section called Podcast Logs. And Podcast Logs just talks about what it's like running a podcast in an informal, fun way. So hopefully you guys will like that. And you can comment below and tell us what, who you want us to interview, any recommendations. Yeah, just tell us what you like about it. So thanks so much for listening. And set your sights high. And aim for the moon.